Hey there. My name's Tim. Welcome to The Table, the podcast edition. The Table is a community that exists to make room to explore what we believe. What you're about to hear is an edited version of something that we call the talkie bit. We're sharing it with the hope that it can be a positive catalyst and encouragement to you in your own explorations. In our experience, exploring what we believe can sometimes be hard work, and we don't think anybody should have to do that alone. We're able to offer this because of the generous support of donors both within and beyond a local community. If you want to contribute to keeping it going, you can find information about how to do that at thetablewinnipeg.com. Thanks for dropping by. Welcome to the Talkie Bit. I have a couple of feelings that I want to note before we kind of get into the nitty-gritty of the exploration today. Um, The first is that I feel very privileged to be exploring the topic of rest today from the vantage point of sort of (laughs) mid-vacation, which um, our our family time together this summer is sort of in two chunks, and this Sunday falls in between the two. And that that does afford me a bit different perspective uh, than I might have if I was just barreling along at full speed, although... um, you know, as somebody already observed, I look a little tired. That's partly I've explained that, but also it's about coming home to a yard that, you know, has been neglected and going, okay, we have this many days between not being home to try to make this look like people actually live here. And, uh, and so that was, that was yesterday. But I want to keep that perspective in mind because I know it's not necessarily the norm in my life and in most of our lives, right? It's a, it's a, there's something luxurious about that perspective and privileged. So that's one thing. The second feeling that I have is that uh, on this topic of, of sacred rest, I might sort of be speaking to the choir. Now, that's a, that's a bit of a strange idiom to use at the table. There's no choir in sight. Uh, there's not likely to ever be, although like we could kind of get all sideways one alt Sunday and get Cheryl maybe to bring the Rainbow Harmony Project in here, and there'd be like, I don't know, 30 of them and a dozen of us. And, <laughs> It'd be, it'd, be, it'd be kind of fun. But, but the notion that's carried by the idiom, I think, might still apply. In general, the notion of the idiom is this idea that, that someone is speaking to convince, but they're doing that in a setting where there's a bunch of people that are already on side, but whatever the convincer is on about. So there might actually be, a, even though the choir part might be explainable, but there, there might actually be another problem with using that idiom. For the literalists, of course, there is no choir. But the second problem might be that I'm not actually speaking to convince anyone of anything at least not in any sort of top-down or authoritative sense, because that's not how gathering to explore what you believe actually works. That's, that's not exploring. That's a guided tour. And it's not that it doesn't have a place, but it's a different thing. So in this particular instance, I would say that perhaps this idea of speaking to the choir might actually, uh, on this topic, mostly be about me talking to myself. Y'all are welcome to listen in. Um, But when it comes to seeing rest as something other than pragmatic, I I would say that the first person I know of who needs to see the light about that or be convinced about that would probably be me. I remember remember reading a book on this topic uh, way back. I think it was college. The book was called When I Relax, I Feel Guilty. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I guess, I guess I've been working on this project for a while. Um, in any case, what I remember about the book was a story that the author told in the book about leading a retreat on this topic. As I remember the book, and it's a vague memory, but it was a pretty stereotypical kind of Christian self-help kind of book, and so he's telling you know stories about Christian retreats and things. But he's doing this retreat on this topic, 
with a bunch of business leaders. And, and as he's sort of doing this first session and he's setting up the spiritual foundations of rest, these guys, and yeah, it's all guys, they're all head down. They're, like, they're just typing away on their Blackberries. Um, for those of you who haven't seen the movie yet, that's like an iPhone, but it has like an actual keypad. So he basically stopped what he was doing and he said, you know, something along the lines of, we need to decide right now if we have time to consider rest before we go on. Like, are we actually going to stop the bus long enough to talk about this or not? And then they, they made a decision about how they were going to proceed and went from there. That is not the circumstance today. I'm, I'm happy to say we don't need to confront that kind of um, commitment to activity in this setting at this moment. But if you're like me on this one, a little bit of an on-ramp might be helpful. So for starters, let me just lay out some things that we probably all know or that we think we know about the pragmatic benefits of rest. And I should say, by way of full disclosure, the way I've laid this out is a bit of a bait and switch. And, and um, because, ah, <clears throat> never mind, because let's just do the bait first and then the switch because it's more fun when, when you don't see it coming. So here we go. According to the CDC, Center for Disease Control, most adults need between seven and nine hours of sleep per night. I know. High-performance athletes, high athletes need more, which is very relevant to all of us. <laughs> NBA, NBA superstar LeBron James, sort of a high-profile example of this, famously committed to getting 12 hours of sleep per 24-hour cycle whenever possible, eight to nine hours at night plus three hours of napping. I don't, I don't think even 12 hours of sleep in 24 is going to make me any kind of an athlete, never mind one that's you know, seven feet tall. But there are some other benefits to getting enough rest, and so let's just touch on a couple of those for starters. So first off, if we're adequately rested, we're going to experience better memory, and we're going to experience better task performance. So on the memory front, sleep disruption affects memory processing and formation, the way we actually store stuff. On the performance front, adequate rest contributes in some particular ways <clears throat> that would include things like focus, emotional reactivity, decision-making, risk-taking behavior, judgment, those kinds of things. And it also affects disrupted sleep, affects stress hormones, and stress hormones have an impact on cognition, and so disrupted sleep can affect, negatively impact our ability to cognitively process. Also, if we're adequately rested, we have a lower risk of heart disease. And the correlation there is that sleep helps our body to regulate blood pressure, and that reduces the risk of high blood pressure, and that's a significant factor in heart disease. So that's the, that's the correlation there. Also, if we're adequately rested, we will have more emotional and social intelligence. At least, and this is interesting, this study fascinated me, at least we'll think we do. So the study that I was referencing on this, in particular, 477 participants. They were asked to complete questionnaires about sleep habits and emotional intelligence. And in that study, the people who routinely experienced higher quality sleep tended to perceive themselves as having better emotional intelligence, such as doing well in social interactions, maintaining relationships, feeling positive, controlling impulses, all that stuff. Now, that might not be the kind of simple one-to-one correlation that we would love to have, right? Like sleep enough do great socially. It's just it's like there's a hard link. It's not quite that simple. But if perception is reality as we experience it, then what the results of this study suggest is that it amounts to something like if we perceive ourselves as doing better or being equipped to do better, we are more likely to do just that, to do better. 
So there is a, there is a correlation even if it's a little bit soft around the edges. Also, if we are getting adequate rest, we're significantly reducing our risk of depression. Now, this is also an interesting in terms of the, terms of the data. Like with so many of these factors, this isn't binary. It's not an on-off switch. Anyone who's had any kind of an experience in or with or around depression knows that it's not an on-off switch kind of challenge to begin with. But there is a correlation because sleep disturbance can impair emotional regulation and stability. It can also alter neural processes. We talked about that a little bit, and those are some of the leading factors for depression. So it's connected. And if we're getting consistent sleep, our body has its best shot at regulating inflammation. And this is a burgeoning field of discovery right now that, that we're just learning that more and more of the things that we experience as ailments in our lives or challenges can be connected to inflammation. And so that's, you know, that's not insignificant. And now we're going to start to get into some categories where the research is even less clear. So it's kind of like there's a connection, but we're not sure what it is yet. So here's one. We already know that sleep helps our body to repair, to regenerate, to recover. And we know that our immune system needs that, that kind of time as well, that the elastic band effect applies to our immune system as well. It needs to both work and be stressed, and it needs to rest and recover. And there's some research that suggests that deep sleep, so I'm not going to get into the stages of sleep, probably mostly have some idea about that, but that that deepest stage of sleep is necessary for our body to repair itself and to strengthen our immune system. But exactly what the mechanisms of deep sleep are that impact that in a correlative way, that's still a little bit open season ongoing study. Similarly, for studies that have to do with how our body processes nutrition and deals with things like our weight, managing our weight or uh, our energy dispersion during our waking hours and so on. All right. Now, this next bit might feel like a bit of a leap at first. But I just stay with me because we're moving from the bait to the switch. Uh, and that might take a little bit of doing to turn that corner. So, um, Kareen and I did something recently that we haven't done for a while. We went to a movie like in a theater. We went out to a movie. Kind of fun, as some of you know. You've done this more and more recently. And the movie we went to see was also pretty delightful, at least to us. Uh, we went to see Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Uh, it's important to remember, in terms of how much we enjoyed this movie, that, that Kareen and I are from a generation that can remember the first movie. Right? You know? And, and we might have even loved that first movie. And we have been waiting the entire series for another decent one. You know? And, and, and you don't need a movie review, so I said no spoilers. So let me tell you why I'm telling you about this. We, we liked it. That's all I'm going to say by way of review. The Indiana Jones movies have all had sort of more than a dash of the mystic or the spiritual about them. And it's always connected to some object or other because, you know, Professor Jones does have a day job as an archaeologist, apparently. And so he's looking for some object or other in all these movies, right? Seems to have a lot of time to gallivant around the world. Uh, and money, yeah, just at bottomless resources. And, and, and yeah. yeah. Well, I, actually, how many of you have seen the movie? Yeah. Okay, well, I won't say anything about his tenure. Then you, you have to, it's part of the story. Um, but, but he's, he's looking for stuff, right? He's looking for, like, the, ten, the tablets with the commandments on them, or he's looking for the chalice that Jesus ostensibly used at the Last Supper, just to pick a couple of objects from the, you know, Judeo-Christian stream of history. And, of course, this all gets mixed together with trying to defeat the Nazis, but we're just going to skirt right past that <laughs> part for now. In this particular movie, the object in question is this so-called dial of destiny, about which I'm only going to say that Indy has a colleague, fellow 
archaeologist who, who thinks that this object can mess with time. And in one pivotal scene, Indy feels like his pal is losing his grip on the rational side of things. And he insists that proving things, in the Western scientific sense of proving them, is what makes something valid. It's what makes it science. That's his line. That's what makes it science. He kind of yells it at this guy, trying to just knock him off this this, uh, crazed trajectory that he's on. The point is, in the context of the movie and in our context this morning, is that that's kind of a way of thinking that keeps us clear of the woo-woo. You know, it, it keeps us out of the realm of the unprovable and perhaps the indefensible. Now, here's the connection. So far, everything that I've been offering as reasons for why rest matters has a couple of characteristics in common. For starters, all of that stuff that we were just talking about has equated rest with sleep. And we know both by reason and by experience that rest is about more than sleep. So why the emphasis on sleep? And the simple answer is that sleep is observable. Sleep is measurable in the scientific sense. To quote Indiana Jones, that's what makes it science, right? So if we're going to suggest that rest matters, and if we want to have science be one of the ways that we support that notion, then we need to equate rest with something measurable. Now, nothing essentially wrong with that. We can learn a great deal by approaching subjects that way. We, we keep imagination in the process by starting with a hypothesis, which is something uncertain and unproven, an idea, maybe even a mystery. So that's where the scientific process begins, which I find reassuring. But as Indy finds out over and over and actually says in a conversation uh, with the, the other significant lead in the movie at one point, I've seen things. I've seen things too, I think is the actual line. Sometimes science comes up against its own self-imposed limits when it's dealing with matters of mystery, mystic, and I would, I would include in that bundle spirit. The other thing that all those rationale for rest that I talked about have in common is that they are most often tested, so the studies that stand behind them, test them against measurable outputs. Most often, our ability to produce or do better in some measurable way in some setting or other, most often at work. So you might be familiar with sayings like, you snooze, you lose, or, you know, you can sleep when you're dead. Um, Workplace contexts, you know, for these things. People that are regarded, this is an interesting thing, people that are regarded as high performers in the workplace don't tend to brag about eating poorly or not getting enough exercise. But it's not unusual for there to be this kind of curious culture of what one of the researchers I was reading for this called sleep machismo that shows up at work, right? Like, I'm just going to push through. Still here. See you tomorrow. Want it on my desk by nine. Whatever. Lots of tropes. I have a family member uh, who's currently completing her internship as a GP, and she's experiencing the intensity of the kinds of physical demands that are placed on training physicians at that point in the process. And and like lots of young physicians, um, she has some critique to offer about that system. And, uh, and she's a bold, thoughtful woman, and, and she went to her direct supervising physician and asked her about it. said, why do we do this? Why is the system set up like this? The physician's, her supervising physician's explanation was, my internship was brutal, so yours will be too. Whole story. 
right? Yeah. You know? So it's, what we're talking about when we talk about that is we could understand that interaction as a culture-producing system. I think it's Peter Drucker who says that culture has strategy for breakfast, right? Like systems come down the trail somewhere. It's how we actually do things and the way we've done them for a long time that actually underpins all of this stuff. And until that changes, until somewhere between my internship was brutal so yours will be too, shifts, the system's not going to change. And that's just, that's an example, right? So when it comes to rest, there's lots of that going on. There's, there's cultural underpinnings to this that mean that the dominant thinking and research and evidence about it is based on certain understandings of value and the human person. But, so that's in a contemporary setting. It's not just a contemporary value. There's this ancient Hebrew proverb that says, and some of you will recognize this one because you've had it leveled at you probably, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. <laughs> Nap? I don't think so. Right? So this idea that rest can lead to ruin and that doing without rest can lead to prosperity, that's been around for a while. But here's the thing. As this whole list that I've been unpacking suggests, rest might actually be the key that unlocks something far more important to our humanity than showing up at work ready to make more widgets per hour than we did yesterday. And this is where it gets tricky, but also I think this is where it gets more interesting because this is arguably where it gets spiritual, or to use the word that I chose for the blurb, sacred. Sacred just means set apart, right? but it often gets applied to the spiritual. When we don't rest adequately, we tend to accumulate stress. And when we accumulate stress, we're headed for an experience that we might call, we might label overwhelm. Um, John Kabat-Zinn, some of you will be familiar with Kabat-Zinn's work. Um, Kabat-Zinn is an American professor, now emeritus of medicine. He's the creator of the Stress Reduction Clinic and also the Center for Mindfulness in Medicine, Healthcare, and Society at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. He defines overwhelm this way. He says, overwhelm is that all-too-common feeling that our lives are somehow unfolding faster than the human nervous system and psyche can manage. I'd ask for a show of hands, but we've probably all been there, right? One of the curious effects of this feeling is that when we feel overwhelmed, the, the math here is a little alarming, but when we feel overwhelmed, we tend to experience our emotions very strongly, pay attention to them less and less, and understand them barely at all. And so uh, I think it's Brene Brown who actually puts numbers to this. She's like, when I, when I feel overwhelmed, my feelings are on 10, my attending to my feelings is on 5, and my understanding of what I'm feeling is on 2. Because we're overwhelmed. Lots of, all the feels but we're not processing the feels. We're not standing back from them. We're just having them full on. So how to break out of a cycle like that and somehow move toward rest? And the connection to the spirit part, which I should just touch on briefly, we'll unpack it a little bit, is that what we believe about things, what we use spiritual language for, in the end, <laughs> can, you can... Take me to task about this later, and I can unpack it more if you wish. But in the end, those things are feelings. That's how we experience them, as feelings. They are, in the end, not facts. There may be facts in and around them. But in the final event, 
What we use spirit language for is something we feel. So, hence the connection to an experience like overwhelm, for example. How to break out of a cycle like that and somehow move toward rest. So, Kabat-Zinn suggests something that I find really fascinating. Here he suggests that what he calls mindful play or no agenda, non-doing time is the cure for overwhelm. Play, by definition, has no utility. It's good for nothing. Now, we don't play to accomplish something. would be another way to say it. Now, play might have measurable positive outcomes. We might feel relieved of the overwhelm. We might feel relaxed. We might feel joyful. We might feel ecstatic. It depends on what our play involves. All kinds of things we might feel. But if we're doing play for those outcomes, we're not playing, we're training. (laughs) So that's important, right? Actual play does not have utility. That's why we can get lost in it, right? That's, That's why kids, watch kids play, and they're like, supper time already? Yeah, you've been playing since seven this morning. You know, like, right? They get caught up in this world that they're making or whatever the game is, and time just starts to misbehave. No utility. It's not for a reason. It's its own thing. So if we're doing it for an outcome, we're still doing. We're not non-doing. I don't know about you, but there's a gap between those experiences that feels unapproachable to me sometimes. It's like, how do you even get there? That's such a wild idea as it correlates with any experience I've ever had, it feels like. Now, I can think of times that whatever the play was was so captivating and so engaging that that time did misbehave. Often for me that has to do with music. but um, And also some kinds of very intense physical activity where if you're not paying attention, you're in trouble. And so you tend to be very focused and occupied, right? But, um, yeah, it's, it's not a common experience. Non-doing, though, when I stand back and think about it a little bit, sounds, at least to me, like the best parts of the ideas that we might associate with this Hebrew notion of Sabbath, a word which simply means stop. <laughs> the actual thing just means stop doing. But the context for that idea set is that we stop doing or we enter a space of non-doing as a sacred act. We actually address ourselves to time in a way that sets it aside to do nothing. And we do it because of something that we would use a word like the divine for. Now, whether we buy into the mythology of an anthropomorphized God taking one day and seven off or not, that's the story behind the Sabbath idea. The notion that there is something essentially divine about rest is central to thinking of rest as sacred or spiritual. Those dots are connected. And the connecting point, I mean, there's lots of ways we can come at this, but here's one. For me, the connecting point is the thought that we, us humans, carry our divinity with us. And that the very character of that divinity, the spiritual reality of who we are as humans, if you want to say it that way, includes as a sacred thing, rest. So if we want to behave our divinity, if we want to behave whatever it means that we are like God in some way, whether you regard that as based on a text about being made in an image, or whether you regard that as an understanding of the presence of the mystery for which we would use language like divine in the world, and it has nothing to do with it being anywhere else, like how, and anywhere in between, however we understand that, if we want to think about rest as a sacred or spiritual thing, it's essential that we understand 
that the way we behave rest, the way we behave that aspect of the divine is a body thing. That it's about how we live with our bodies. In the Christian tradition, this shows up as the idea that our bodies are the home of spirit, right? The temple of the Holy Spirit would be sort of the actual phrase from Corinthians that some of us would be familiar with. It's the treatment of our bodies as though they were machines that is behind things like sleep, machismo, your internship will be brutal because mine was, get enough rest so you can perform well at work, all of those ideas. In many ways, it's the demythologizing, the despiriting of the human person that is behind all of that. It's the mechanization of the human person. It's us thinking of ourselves in mechanistic terms that runs in the background of that. And it's the understanding that we are embodied spiritual beings that can help us start to imagine how we might push back against that. And it does take some imagining for most of us because this is not a culture that we are surrounded by. This is not going to get a lot of reinforcement. In fact, this is a rather big, definitely counter to the prevailing cultural idea. And it's quite directly related. I'm not going to unpack this now at all. We'll, we'll maybe come back to it another time. But it's quite directly related to some other big ideas like decolonization and reparation. You can't actually engage with decolonization without taking rest and spirit seriously. You're not going to make very... Well, we can. We're not going to make very much progress. We're going to mostly deal with the dock, you know, that little dock columns diagram that I made a while ago. Maybe some of you don't. We're going to deal with the surface. We're not going to deal with the culture. We'll come back to it maybe, like I said, another time. I, I, what I like to think of this sort of as a slow curve concept, one that can take a lifetime to even begin to learn about. It's one that we practice in bits and pieces over a long time, which is, by the way, how change happens, the accrual of many small things, right? As you know, if you've ever made a New Year's resolution, and like a really big one, you know, and then six weeks later you're like, shit. <laughs> I guess I'm done with that, right? That, that's the kind of change that doesn't tend to stick as well as often, but that, that small incremental, those changes, right? 10,000 steps or, you know, over time. That's how we shift things. This is kind of like that, but it's, this is an idea, this idea that rest is spiritual. This is an idea that has so much power that if enough people get on board with this, this is the kind of thing that could actually change the culture. And when the culture can change, then the systems can change, and then the things that we call the structures can change, and then the things that we call systemic problems can start to change. I'm not going to try to do justice to that in, in a, a talky bit. Never mind this talky bit. I don't think I could if I tried in a past. But I wanted to introduce it today so we can come back and explore it some more another time. I wanted to kind of put it out there so it can tumble around in our minds and our imaginations and in our lived experience, and, uh, and we, can, we can start to kind of watch for it, right? Right, because that's how we'll tend to start to notice it and, and have our own experiences around how do I plug some of this into my life? How do I actually start to make incremental shifts? What I'm going to do is leave us, though, um, today with some thoughts from a person named Tricia Hersey on this. Uh, Hersey is a black woman, an artist, a poet, a theologian, community organizer. She is also the founder of something called the Knapp Ministry. It's a fascinating person. Um, she's also the author of a book, uh, a best-selling book, as it happens, called Rest is Resistance, a manifesto. Um, very zesty manifesto uh, that, that calls for rest as a way to resist many of the things that undermine and even attempt to undo the divinity of humanity, to undo spirit. And, uh, yeah, she's very, very thoughtful. And she, she sees the world as one might expect as a thinker and an activist and an organizer and an author from the vantage point of a black woman um, 
a womanist, feminist. I mean, some of those themes are very strong in her work. Uh, somebody who might say, for example, that capitalism was actually invented in a cotton field. You know, that slavery is actually what underpins capitalism, and hence what she calls grind culture, this idea that our machines are a grist for the mill. You know. Anyway, I'm going to read you a little section uh, from her and just leave us with this. It's a bit of a call to action, as one might expect from such a thinker and writer. People are waking up. People are waking up. People are waking up to the truth of their manipulation under toxic systems. People are waking up to heal. People are waking up to rest. We will no longer be a martyr for grind culture. Grind culture is a collaboration between white supremacy and capitalism. It views our divine bodies as machines. Our worth is not connected to how much we produce. Another way is possible. Our shared history is one of extreme disconnection and denial. We ignore our body's need to rest, and in doing so, we lose touch with spirit. In our bodies, we have our temples. It is the only thing we own. Our bodies are a tool agent for change, a site of liberation. Our bodies know the time to rest is now. Our collective rest will change the world because our rest resides in a spirit of refusal and disruption. Rest is our protest. Rest is resistance. Rest is reparations. I remain grateful for the mystery of the unknown, experimentation, and the constant demand for liberation, no matter what the systems have told us. Grateful for our divinity that we can tap into no matter what we are living through. Grateful for the metaphysical, the telepathic, the deep knowing that our worth is not connected to how much labor we can withstand. Just listen to the sentence again. Grateful for the deep knowing that our worth is not connected to how much labor we can withstand. The rest message is a message of power over oppression. Rest is a balm. We will rest. And then she follows that with the tenets of the Nat ministry and then kind of unpacks that. So that's where I'm going to leave us. Those are, uh, at least for me, uh, challenging ideas. They feel essential. They feel overdue. Um, They also feel a bit confounding. And uh, Hersey addresses herself almost directly after this in the, in the book to the dilemma that many people have when they encounter ideas like this for the first time, which is, but I need to make a living. I have bills to pay. I'd love to do what you're talking about. But how does that fit? And uh, so maybe we'll, we'll get a chance to consider some of those things because that, for many of us, I think is the immediate question that comes to mind, isn't it? That sounds lovely. Uh, that sounds lovely, Tricia. And also... What planet are you on? Uh, but there is another way to think about this, and we'll, we'll explore that, I expect, at some point in the future, but not today. That's all I'm going to say about that for today.